listener. Hi, and welcome back to Broadsheet Sydney Around Town. I'm Emma Joyce, Features Editor at Broadsheet, and I host this short guide to Sydney. Today, we're chatting with Talia Smith, the guest curator of Primavera, which is the MCA's yearly exhibition of young Aussie artists. It's one that has a lot of history. Primavera's alumni includes Michaela Dwyer, Sean Gladwell and Abdul Abdullah, to name just a few. This year's features striking artworks, including an incredibly detailed sculpture about being a model migrant. Before that, Broadsheet's Grace McKenzie is here to share her favourite eats from the recently opened Karumba, including a fragrant lobster kotu, a faluda soft serve and a coconut custard pudding with spiced ice cream. In one of our earlier episodes, we talked about the closure of The Fold in Dulwich Hill and how the family behind the Sri Lankan restaurant were opening a new place in Surrey Hills, this time with a hopper bar and a modern interpretation of the kind of street food they loved as kids. Broadsheet's Grace McKenzie has visited Karumba, but this isn't The Fold 2.0, so I'd love to get kind of more information about how they've realised this particular dream. Yeah, so for anyone that's been to The Fold, it was the cafe in Dulwich Hill. Really nice, casual, had hoppers for breakfast. And Karumba is not anything like that. It's um, a really lovely space that's got a beautiful green interior and like a beautiful bar as you're like walking in. It's got two levels. There's like an upstairs just dining area as well. And the plates are really well executed and quite special. Our writer, Pilla Mitchell, has said the hopper bar seats are by far the best in the house. Why is that? When you first walk into the space, it's actually quite a narrow little walkway to walk behind the seating that um, runs along the hopper bar. As soon as you walk in, even if you walked past, you'd be able to see it. There's like a singular line of gas stoves that have the rounded bottom bowl-shaped pans um, that they cook the hoppers in. And you can just see somebody like making five or six at a time. It's actually quite impressive. Now, the family behind it have said they've had the name for the restaurant for quite a few years. And the reason they closed the fold is because they needed to kind of pool all their energy into Karumba. So can you tell us what have they pulled their energy into? What is the food like in comparison to the fold? So there's like really lovely, like snacky things to start. We had the Sini Sambal Puff, which is like a house-made puff pastry, like a tiny little square of it with this beautiful, rich caramelized onion relish and then um, vanilla buffalo curd on top and then there's also like smoked brisket pan rolls that look like croquettes that kind of more snacky start feeds into like classic share style things that you would expect at a Sri Lankan restaurant so yeah they've got this beautiful roasted lobster curry but then they've also got a lobster kotu they chop up all of their like house-made rotis on the hot plate and mix it with egg curry sauce, and then serve it with roasted lobster. It's a really impressive plate that comes out and not like anything that I've seen many places. The venue is two floors, so you can sit on two different levels. Is there a different vibe upstairs or downstairs? I guess because the seating downstairs is like really alongside that bar menu and then some in the window seating, it feels like a bit of a quicker pace. If you were going to park up, sit for a bit longer, I would probably be heading upstairs. When I went, I was outside, which was actually very nice. On the venue's drinks menu, they've got some signature cocktails. There's some that stand out to me, like the Rumba Carumba, just because I love the way that sounds. There's also a Colombo Gimlet and Silk Road. Did you drink any of those? I had the Gimlet, 
was very refreshing and quite spicy. It's got calamansi in it and patchouli. And there's like quite an expansive wine list as well. So fans of The Fold have also been asking them whether or not there are any house-baked pastries that are kind of making an appearance at Carumba. And I know that they're planning on potentially bringing that in later down the track, but they do have some delicious desserts on this particular menu. Are there any that you tried? Yeah, I had the Wadalapam. It's like a creme caramel style dessert. Yeah, it was really silky, really creamy, made on like a coconut milk with a spiced syrup and ice cream. And then also the Faluda soft serve, which I think is like becoming their signature dessert. It's this really beautiful dish of this like rose pink ice cream that also comes with like crispy vermicelli and pistachios. It's stunning. It's got that like old school Sunday vibe to it with like a glacé cherry on the top. The one that's really speaking to me right now is the chocolate biscuit pudding, which has Valrona dark chocolate mousse, a kind of biscuit underneath vanilla and then rum ice cream. So they're, they're really indulgent. Yum. Well, Carumba is now open at 55 Crown Street in Surrey Hills. Thanks so much, Grace. Thanks, Emma. There's a particularly intriguing artwork at the Museum of Contemporary Art right now. It has dried chicken feet, dried pig intestines as part of a shrine of patchwork tablecloths, horse figurines and a pink panther toy. It's a work called I Pray You Eat Cake and it's by a young Australian artist in this year's Primavera exhibition. Each year, the MCA showcases works by a group of early career artists. And this time around, guest curator Talia Smith has selected those involved. Talia joins us in the studio today. Hey, Talia. Hello. First of all, can you tell us a bit about the artist behind I Pray You Eat Cake and why they've chosen these items as part of what feels like almost a feast of different objects in a sculpture? Sure. So the artist behind uh, that work is Truk Trung. Truk is based in Adelaide and her work is what I describe as maximalist. So instead of shying away and making something that is perhaps very slick and minimal, she goes full hog and collects a bajillion different kinds of objects. Uh, Things like you've described that you saw in the install, Uh, Lots of sort of pop culture references, Mm. but also references to her culture. So she's Vietnamese, um, Australian born, and her parents uh, fled Vietnam and came to Australia. So a lot of the objects also have that kind of, um, I guess I describe as a sort of punchiness to them. They sort of make fun of some of the stereotypes or racial, uh, racist, sorry, stereotypes of um, being Vietnamese about certain foods, which is why you'll see a lot of horse included. There are horse kind of heads. Yes, horse heads, yes. (laughs) I think I always like to say about her work that when you first approach it, it looks very fun and um, amusing. You know, there is a lot of humour in it. But as you get closer, you start seeing things like the headless horse and um, a whole circle of naked Barbies kind of in a weird sort of almost prayer circle around a durian fruit. You know, um... And they're all white Barbies, white blonde Barbies. So this it's very clever and funny, but also in a very, I guess, dark way. It's the humour that initially drew me to this work. The colour as well, I should probably say. The way that it felt like it was something that I really had to 
dive into and, and figure out for myself. Yes. But I found that there was a lot of humor, maybe maybe dark humor in there because it's it's drawn from a place that's a lot more complicated. Yes. Um, but it's so impressive. How did you decide that this particular artist and this particular artwork would be part of the exhibition? So when I was approached to pitch for this exhibition, so the process is a few of us are, um, I guess, shoulder tapped to pitch uh, to curate the exhibition. And you go through a process and then um, sometimes you're chosen, sometimes you're not. So when I was researching to put together this pitch, I was really interested in artists that are kind of challenging and critiquing the status quo and not really taking a backseat and wanting to, I guess, Explore ways of creating a more inclusive and accessible future. I found that during our COVID times, which of course haven't ended, we were really faced with how governmental structures and other societal structures that were only created by a certain few have really let us down. And I really wanted to see how artists are um, working through those kind of societal issues. And with Chook's practice, I had come across her work through a mutual friend of ours. And again, I think I was drawn in in the same sort of way you were. Um, I also forgot to mention that the tables spin like a Lazy Susan in a Chinese restaurant. So they're also kinetic, but also bright and funny. Um, And also exploring these incredibly complex issues around being a model migrant and what that even means. And I think that her work is just is really powerful on so many levels and I couldn't not include it. Can we talk about Tian Baker's work, which is made up of bamboo, there's a machete, there's palm leaves, coconut leaves, digital components, like a screensaver. What is that telling us? Um, so Tian Baker, who is based in Newcastle, but from Darwin, uh, she is an artist who is from Indigenous Borneo heritage. And so her work in this show really looks at combining or at least presenting how Indigenous knowledge and contemporary knowledge can actually work together in the future, rather than tossing aside Indigenous knowledge and thinking that it's old and traditional. She embraces that. And how she's done that in her installation is it's actually a computer. So the whole thing is a working computer. Um, The little bamboo house is based off a Borneo longhouse, which is traditional house that was created Um, you know, for multiple generations of families to live in. You know, there were meetings. It was really the heart of culture, of uh, this Indigenous culture. Um, And so the hard drive has become that kind of heart, which I think is really clever. And then to the side, you see other parts like the actual screen, the keyboard, the mouse. And actually on the screen, there is some scrolling text, which is not too important for the viewer to necessarily read. But what that text is is all these kind of little, uh, I guess you could say, sayings or prayers almost, which Tian had in her research found that when you were building a longhouse, you had to pray to certain deities and gods. And so instead of having all of those so, you know, traditional ones, she also has like pray to the computer gods on it and you know, pray to the internet, all of that, as well as pray to the bird god, the et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, I think her work really shows us that instead of, like I said, thinking that Indigenous knowledge is old and not useful, 
those cultures were existing a long, long time, very successfully, pre-colonization. You know, why do we not listen to that knowledge if they were successfully existing without uh, colonization? So her kind of praying to the computer is the where this knowledge is stored for her. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, she's part of, well, there actually isn't really a Borneo diaspora as most um, stay in actual Borneo, but she is away from her ancestral homelands. And so again, she has to look to contemporary knowledge, which is the internet, to um, access all of those sort of WhatsApp groups and, you know, family chats to even be able to connect to her culture. So this year's features six artists and they're all aged 35 and younger. And there are lots of different themes that they're all speaking to individually. But are there any that you would say kind of collectively, whether it's intentional or not, have arised from the particular exhibition you're putting on? When I was curating the exhibition, I did kind of come up with these three sort of lenses that I like to view the artist works through, which was perseverance, protest and reimagining. Um, but when I was talking with the artists, it was really interesting to hear uh, the way that they actually related to all of those themes. You can actually see it really in all of those works. And the way I kind of define protest is, is fairly obvious, um, although I, the two artists that I sort of have under that lens, which is Nikki Lamb and Marina Benini, they very much do it in a very, I guess I would say, a sort of subtle uh, way rather than being, say, at the front lines, which they do also do, but this particular work is not showing that. I wanted to kind of present that there are multiple ways of protest and that we need all of them. And then perseverance for me, um, that was something very personal. So I am a woman of colour um, from Pacific Island Heritage and to really be in this industry or any industry in the world is to have to basically persevere because you're not really going to get a lot of um, handouts or hand-ups, um, unfortunately. And so you have to be quite strong in yourself to keep going and keep pushing to get to those sort of senior positions or whatever it may be that you want to do. And it can be really, really difficult. And so Christopher Bassi and Truk's work come into that. And then reimagining for me was really about, I guess, creating kind of what's a positive future, you know? And like I, we, could, we talk a lot about... And by we, I mean people of colour, First Nations people. We talk a lot about um, the struggles, but there's also positives and people are really um, coming together to try and create that more accessible um, future. So how are they doing it? And, and I wanted to sort of also celebrate that. You're a guest curator for this exhibition at the MCA because you also curate the exhibitions at Granville Centre Art Gallery. What's currently showing there? So at Granville at the moment is the Great Granville Garden Show. Pretty proud of that title. I enjoy shows like The Great British Bake Off, so I was trying to riff off that. <laughs> um, so Cumberland City Council, which uh, runs Granville Centre Art Gallery, they uh, are quite young. I think only about six or maybe eight years, six to eight years they were an amalgamated council. So previous to that, it was Auburn and Holroyd councils. And both of those councils had um, a garden competition. I went to the library historian and had a meeting with her to sort of look at all of their materials. And so they had photographs and newspaper articles. And it was a really amazing looking competition that brought a lot of community together. And there were you know, great prizes like 
lawnmowers and gardening, you know, club vouchers and all of those sorts of things. So I thought it was really, really special that there was this um, history here. And I thought, what do gardens mean to us or what can they mean to us in 2023? And so I really wanted to yeah, push the boundaries of what gardens can mean. We have an Indigenous artist who I liked to position her work in that instead of a fenced off garden, front garden, it's actually country. For an Indigenous person, country is a garden. And then we've got Solote Tuali, who um, I included works of hers, which were these large kind of life, well, bigger than life size pot plants because for a lot of us, we don't have gardens. We have to live in apartment buildings, so outside gardens. And so our gardens are our pot plant babies that we have in amongst our house. And it's that kind of thing where I wanted to really look at what gardens can mean and what they still mean to us. If you're keen to check out either of those exhibitions, Primavera 2023 Young Australian Artists is on now at the MCA until Feb. It's free entry and you can find it on Level 1. And Granville Centre Art Gallery is also free entry and it's open Wednesday to Saturday. And that's all we have time for today. Of course, you can stay up to date with what's happening around Sydney at broadsheet.com.au and at broadsheet underscore Sid on Instagram. listener production.